0: Welcome to SWIFT Unscripted. My name is Dan Habib and I work at the Institute on Disability at the University of New Hampshire. These SWIFT podcasts give you, the listener, the opportunity to hear the inside story and be part of the conversation about all means all with leaders in the field of inclusive education and school-wide transformation. Today, we're recording from our SWIFT satellite office at the University of New Hampshire's National Center on Inclusive Education. We're interviewing Dr. Julie Smith, director of special programs for the Pendleton, Oregon School District, And Pendleton has a particular interest in making sure that their uh, large number of students who come from Native American backgrounds have success. So, Julia, I just want to thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Great. Well, let me start, if I could, by just, um, you know, telling me about your position at the school district and what you do there and, and also kind of how that relates to the SWIFT school network.
1: Okay, I am currently the Director of Special Programs for the Pendleton School District. I oversee special education services, 504 services for students, as well as our long-term care and treatment programs and our English learner programs. In this role, I had the opportunity to start working with the SWIFT Schools Network and engage in work around inclusive communities, and so I've been doing that for the past, this is our fifth year.
0: That's great. Well, thank you for being part of the SWIFT Network. Um, Can you tell me a little bit about your background, what you were doing in Pendleton um, previous to this position?
1: So I actually wasn't going to be a teacher. I was going to be in music performance. That's my major in undergrad. I went to Hawaii and was diagnosed with fibromyalgia and learned that I was never going to really play professionally. So then I started searching for my calling. I worked as an instructional assistant in Pendleton when I moved back home in 1996 and uh, decided that I needed to be a special education teacher. So I went back to Portland State University, and long, long story short, ended up back in Pendleton as a resource room teacher for special education in a K-5 elementary school here in Pendleton about 15 years ago. And I have been here. I worked eight years as a special education teacher, two years as an instructional coach for special education. And then when the directorship opened up, I uh, applied for and was accepted into that role, which has been expanding since I've been here. So, uh, uh other duties as assigned has grown. <laughs>
0: Wow. Well, we probably could spend hours talking about just one of your days because I'm sure you have so many <laughs> unique experiences every day. But you know, the reason we wanted to do this podcast largely was because of the unique experience of Pendleton around their Native American population. So can you tell us a little bit about the demographics of the district, um, You know, especially pertaining to the Native American population?
1: Absolutely. Uh, Pendleton sits on what's called ceded lands. So these are lands that were originally treated for the Confederated Tribes of the Umatilla Indian Reservation that then were ceded to the township, which is kind of a nice way of saying taken. And so we are integrally linked to the Confederated Tribes of the Umatilla Indian Reservation in our economies, in our social structures, in our history. They are now intertwined. There are approximately 20% of our students who are considered enrolled members and or descendants, which means they have someone in their lineage who is from the Confederated Tribes of the Umatilla. Those tribes are the Walla Walla, the Cayuse, and then the Umatilla. There are some Nez Perce people that, who live here on the reservation. So those are the makeup of the tribe. And when you look at our actual numbers, it says we are at 13% when you look at the state numbers, but that's largely due to the race and ethnicity reporting changes that were made about four years ago, where they added that multiracial category. And if you check more than one box on the form, you're counted as multiracial, no longer counted as Native American. So that's um, a complicated, again, another full podcast issue that we could discuss.
0: Right. So um, there's no way to obviously generalize about any group of people, but I, I can imagine there may be some particular challenges or experiences you've had in working with the Native American population that may be unique to to, or at least somewhat unique from other populations can you just tell us generally about some of the um, challenges that you think that population faces for whatever reason?
1: Yes. So indigenous uh, peoples from all over and especially in North America have challenges related directly to schools because of the mission schools were assigned in the process to attempt to eradicate tribes initially and then assimilate. So there are long-standing historical school aversion based on the role schools have played in uh, colonizing <laughs> the, the North America, North American content. So When you look at coming to school, crossing that boundary, there is a historical aversion that has been genetically passed down from one generation to next, first through the removal of children from their homes and and put into the Bureau of Indian Education schools, which were largely labor camps, and then the uh, boarding schools, which had uh, the practices of cutting their hair, changing their clothes. People were beaten for speaking their language. So those all run in the background that most people largely aren't aware of in this generation, but are in the history, in the genetic history of their people. So there's a lot of people who have really poor attendance rates or don't value the the school education because it's not necessarily in line with the cultural education. The system was originally designed to assimilate cultures into one and be that melting pot. So then when we talk about the new direction of having more culturally responsive and valuing the cultures of all people, there are system design flaws that we encounter on a regular basis that impede our ability to meet the needs of our diverse students. And for us in particular, it's the Native American students. So teachers and students, there's a mismatch there. 99% of our teachers are white. Many of them grew up here in Pendleton and have a relationship somehow with the reservation, but not necessarily the history that's been omitted from the history curriculums over the last century of the Indigenous people. Those are largely absent from the curriculum that our teachers received. So those are challenges that we battle with. Uh, that lead to some of the issues of over-identification for students who are Native American in the area of special education. And that's really how I largely became interested in this work. So when I started looking at that high numbers of students who were placed in special education, I started thinking, this doesn't make sense to me. Uh, they don't necessarily experience disability at a higher rate. So something else is going on here. And what kind of essentially, if I want to centralize, which is much more complex than this, when students do well, don't do well in school, we look for every way to help them. And so special education has become one of those ways to help other students. And what we really need to do is look at the system of education and how we're serving all students so that we're meeting their needs initially when they come into our core programs and not having those issues of them struggling later and then retrofitting and providing special education as an intervention.
0: That's really well said, all that. So I, I picked up two big threads in terms of challenges among among the things you were saying. One is over-identification. Also, it sounds like absenteeism could be an issue. Are there any other particular issues that you encounter on a day-to-day basis? I mean, is, is that is that is population um, largely lower income, possibly? Are there, you know, uh, any any other just general issues that you find that, that make educating, um, being, helping those kids be successful, Particularly challenging?
1: Intergenerational trauma is one I didn't talk about. And so there's a large, uh, high percentage of intergenerational trauma. So when you've experienced a genocidal effort, you are severely traumatized as a people. And then that trauma is passed down from one generation to the next. And that trauma leads to substance abuse issues. Uh, you know, lots of other health issues, actually health-related issues that then impede your ability to be the fullest parent that you can and to raise your children in the safest place. There are um, high levels of drug and alcohol abuse that are related to that for the tribe that they have they have their own health center and they're really trying to address those and the impacts of intergenerational trauma that we also have very low graduation rates for our students. So we have about 55% on any given year, kind of goes up and down based on the end size, uh, but that graduate with a diploma in four years of starting uh, high school. So those are some of the other issues that I would say are in there.
0: Yeah, that's really helpful to add. So it sounds like if families may have some generational skepticism about the school structure, yeah, I know one of the key principles of Swift is family engagement. So is it does it make it more difficult to engage the families in their child's education and in literally in the building?
1: It absolutely does. It absolutely does. We are working hard to try to make it a safe place for parents to cross that threshold, a place where it's a non-judgmental and then just to engage them and be present in in tribal activities, so in cultural activities that are out there. Now, not all of our tribal students are very culturally active either, so trying to find ways to connect with those families who are not only disconnected from the school system, but disconnected, too, from some of their cultural heritage that they're trying to revive and the languages that they're trying to revive. So we try to work together with the um, government out of the Confederated Tribes of Matilda. They have their own education department. So we work closely with them because they're also trying to engage the same parents we're struggling to engage.
0: Have you had any particular strategies that you've seen be successful in terms of communicating with families, engaging families? Um, and, and as an aside, I guess, has Swift the SWIFT experience brought anything new to the table along those lines?
1: Well, several of our folks have attended the national PLIs. We didn't attend this year due to budget cuts, but... It, particularly around engagement. It's also been the work on the braiding of funds. So looking at multiple ways to fund things and looking at our core systems of instruction. So when we talk about SWIFT, it's all of those things, right? Our multi-tiered systems of support. How is our core reaching the needs of all of our learners, including those who are Native American? And then how do we partner with our with our education partners on the tribe to improve outcomes for our students? So that has been something we started before SWIFT. We started meeting with them on a pretty regular basis. I would say that the meetings initially were just problem solving, and now they're much more strategizing. So, how can we develop curriculum that is embedded at every grade level that addresses the Confederated Tribes and Tribe Matilla Indian Reservation histories and culture and uh, ceremonial practices, celebratory practices? And then the nine tribes of Oregon, and then those culturally responsive types of things. How can our high school students start learning about hegemony and how that impacts our view of the world? Uh, So that partnership, I think, has deepened through the Swift work as we have engaged more deeply. in how do we authentically engage our partners rather than just sort of surface, come to the school, see what we're doing more. Let us come to you and see what you're doing and bring that to our educational practices.
0: That's very powerful stuff. So um, you mentioned MTSS and that's a multi tiered systems of support for those of you who don't do the acronyms as much. Um, Can you talk about any specific examples of the way your MTSS implementation or execution has has evolved in recent years and particularly anything you think has been successful along those lines.
1: We worked hard to bring literatures that are written by Native peoples, whether they're from the C2IR or other uh, indigenous peoples across the, the world, really. But bring in authors and poets and artists and those types of things into our core curriculums so that you see yourself in the reading core rather than only white people or only you know another group people. So when we looked at our core, we used those principles when we adopted a new reading core program. We looked at, okay, what curriculum offers us the most of this? And then we worked through another grant that we had. It was the Culturally Relevant Pedagogy Teaching and Learning Grant, I believe is what it was called. And we worked with the tribes. It was a partnership where we thought, okay, what are those literatures? We need a list of all the literature. We bought literature from the Tamaskalit, which is their cultural heritage Institute out on the reservation we bought them from them so it was a supportive economic environment um, those books that were on the list we bought Umatilla dictionaries to put in every single classroom uh, we have principals who started using the Umatilla greetings and so when you think about core programs it's not just reading writing and math it's also you know every day we do daily routines that are part of our core program how can we have greetings in Umatilla so that then we're being inclusive in the in the types of of ways that we engage everyone all the time.
0: It sounds like you're trying to make a more welcoming school culture and climate for the students, and while also educating the larger population about some of these traditions. And it, it almost sounds like a, a braiding of positive behavioral supports and cultural responsiveness of trying to do both at the same time, which is that's fa- fascinating. Have you? Um, this may be along the same lines, but you you cited attendance issues and absenteeism absenteeism is one big issue. Anything particular you've done along those lines to increase attendance among the, the this population?
1: So yes, um, I, I can't say that we've... Uh had a huge amount of success, so I don't want people to think we have some sort of panacea here that this we can offer, right. um, but we keep trying, and I think that's that's the key when you're working with Indigenous peoples who've, who've suffered such traumatized past, is that you keep trying and you keep working together. You don't give up just because it's hard or because you don't see instant results, but we actually worked, the state put out a tribal attendance pilot project, which we were part of, and we were able to hire a family advocate that... Um, really sort of dug into what are those issues keeping people from school we had family engagement nights as a result of that project one of our schools has all of their signage is in in both Umatilla language and Waileptu language so all of the signs were added to one of our newer buildings that has uh, so when you come into the school to see that language to me brings tears and chills because schools were a site of eradication for native languages and native languages are dying all over the world. Indigenous languages are dying all over the world because of that. There are very, very few speakers left. They only have a, a handful of speakers of Walla, Walla And so when we look at putting that signage in the school, to me, that's a very powerful message when you come to the school. So that, uh, Parent advocate also would make contacts with families, had, you know, incentives, information. We brought in the bus company to talk about some of the transportation issues that were going on. And they met with parents from the from the reservation and talked about some of their issues with transportation. And then the transportation person was able to talk about their struggles with transportation and kind of come to a more common understandings of the, of, of the challenges each group is experiencing. And we will have that that tribal attendance pilot project has been extended this year as well. So we're looking at, again, a family advocate or two fa- two people, one that does a family advocacy role and one that really focuses on the professional development for our staff around culturally responsive teaching.
0: Hmm. Oh, that's powerful. I think, like you said, having the language uh, have a kind of a, a, a reinforced life in the school building it must be a very powerful both symbolically and just again in terms of the culture for, for the students you you'd mentioned earlier around the issue of um, disproportionate special education identification for American Indian boys I think you, I, I'm not sure if you said this earlier but in previous uh, emails we had we talked about the fact that American Indian boys are particularly um, kind of overly identified is that accurate and, and any thoughts on that or how you're trying to address it?
1: Well, boys in general are overly identified in our district, which is an issue that we need to look at. So is our core responsive to our uh, male learners and uh, those that identify as male? And are interventions also being effective for them, because when we looked at gender, we are disproportionate as a district about two to one, which is (laughs) startling.
0: Two two to one boys to girls? Yes.
1: yes, Wow. Yes. that's not as startling in the other. It just, it's, it, I mean, the gender difference by itself is one we have to address. Um, but the disproportionate identification, we're largely over identified in the areas of communication and specific learning disability and what, well, the trend that I've seen over time is that they're first identified as having a communication disorder. And then when they sort of uh, phase out of those services, they get moved into specially designed you know, or specific learning disability because they've been receiving specially designed instruction in reading, writing, and math since kindergarten. And we haven't closed that gap for them. So those are you know troubling um, issues that we look at. And again, I think I look at it as they're born because when teachers see kids struggle, they try to find them extra help. And what we need to look at is what are we doing systemically that's creating this issue and how can we change that? So how can we have a more responsive core program that meets the needs of our learners who are Native Americans so that they do not need special education or extra help, if you
0: will? Hmm. You know, you also, um, we talked about the fact that there may be disproportionality around discipline referrals also for American Indian boys, again, in particular. Can you talk about how you, if that's a reality, which it sounds like it is, and how you're addressing that?
1: Um, we had really high levels of suspension and expulsions, or really more suspensions, out-of-school suspensions when I started as the director, and um, No one was really uh, looking at that data in a systemic way. I shouldn't say no one was looking at it, but people were looking at it. But um, our data manager would sort of submit the report and then she'd send it back to principals and then that was it. Um, I started really digging into that discipline data as a result of uh, actually a data entry error that caused me to have to do what our district call or the state calls a policy to practice review. Not I never want to have to do those again, so I started really looking <laughs> at that collection every yeah. year and, and breaking it down for our our principals. and just by doing that data analysis of how many days out of school, so I framed it differently, days of exclusion rather than out of school suspension, right out of school suspension, all they deserve it, right? Days of exclusion from school frames that. Differently, So I uh, broke it down in multiple different ways and then have been doing that for five years. And when we look at a comparison as a district, since I started, we are half the out of school suspensions that we were when I, when I started presenting the data. So just the looking at the data has reduced it without necessarily significant changes to anything other than that, that reduced it immediately. And then as we have engaged in the work around historical trauma and brain-based kind of education, we have started working with conscious discipline. And that has reduced, in particular, at one school who school-wide has embraced the the concepts of of conscious discipline, which really is about brain states. So when we're in our most integrated brain state, we're able to think and learn and act and problem-solve and all of those things. But when we are in fear or for safety or we've experienced some trauma and we're trapped in uh, a safety state, so sort of that basal part of the brain is what's really functioning, we're just seeking safety. We can't think, we can't uh, really problem solve, we're just acting and reacting to our environment. And then that in-between state where we're really seeking connection, we're asking, are we safe? I'm not sure, that questioning state. So one of our schools has really embraced that uh, helping kids understand their brain states, learning the powers and, and disciplines to help them regulate their brain states, to self-regulate uh, emotionally, that we have one school that has really focused on that and made some amazing gains. And they had a you know near near zero uh, numbers of incidents where they had to out-of-school suspensions. I mean, we drastically reduced that. Uh, for out-of-school suspensions and the days that they were out of school, so you know, premise on we want to keep kids in school. Now, simultaneously, our high school took a very similar shift where they were focused on relationships, and so we had a huge reduction at our middle school as well in the out-of-school suspensions and days missed, which is often a very high number for high schools.
0: Yeah, yeah. how how we may not have covered this earlier. How big is the district overall? How many uh, students and schools are within Pendleton's district?
1: We have 3,100 students. We are a declining enrollment district, which has been a little bit of a challenge uh, financially for us. But we have one comprehensive high school that also runs an alternative program for online credit retrieval, GED completion. We also have a Niki Allway Community School, which is a tribal charter school located out on the reservation mm. uh, that uh, we hold the charter as a district for that uh, school. And then the tribe runs it. And then we have one middle school, and it is about 700 students. We have three elementary schools that are first through fifth grade. Two are larger in brand new buildings. They run about 500, and then one runs about 300. And then we have uh, something unique. We have the Pendleton Early Learning Center, which houses all of our kindergarten from the entire district, and all of the Head Start classrooms from the Umatilla County Head Start We also have a community preschool there. We have a help center there. The Women, Infants, and Children unit is there. So we try to house all things early childhood that we can fit in there. Um, Pioneer Relief Nursery has an outreach office there. Our Lifeways Mental Health Treatment people have have an outreach office there. So that is actually was one of the first things we did with our bond. And in that, when we started that program, we decided to start a heritage language program. So we have language teachers from the, the tribes that come into our school every day during a walk-to language and teach the Umatilla language to students. And really, you know, it's just sort of the beginning, pre-primer, color words, specific cultural words, and it's really more, you know, language and cultural are intertwined. And so there's a lot of cultural teaching. So two years ago was our first group of kindergartners who cannot grow up ignorant that we live next to a sovereign nation. It was super exciting. And that has continued every year that that's been open. This is the third year.
0: Wow. That's great. Well, it sounds like that really embodies, you know, Swift puts a lot of uh, emphasis on community partnerships, that schools should be community um, partnering with community entities. Sounds like you guys have been taking that to heart for a long time.
1: We
0: have, yes. So, um, you know, one of the things, again, another area that SWIFT puts a lot of emphasis is this idea, they call it inclusive policy structure and practice, or we call it inclusive policy structure and practice. But what that really means is that throughout the whole district, there's some shared philosophy and shared practices. And you can't necessarily, if you have one school practicing under one philosophy and another school under a totally different philosophy, that becomes difficult for a district. Have you been able throughout the whole district to to have some sharing of these approaches and philosophies that there's continuity throughout the different schools to to some degree at least?
1: So it's easy to have continuity at the middle school because there's one. (laughs) But but, uh, for elementary, we're very much on the same page. So we have a shared vision for multi-tiered systems of and uh, we have a framework that all schools work within our elementary principals we meet once a month to talk about issues things going on and then we have uh, other check-ins that the district directors well again there's two of us that go out and meet with with building principals and talk about what's going on that we help teams problem solve through those types of things but we have a pretty. Pretty in-line group at the elementary level. We have professional learning communities, so our, our all of our grade-level teams meet all together. So all of our first grade teachers across the district have a similar focus each year and are working towards goals and improving their core instruction and their instructional practices. Um, so those are regular, regular meetings that happen district-wide that help keep us all on the same page. In a district our size, it's small, so when we're not on the same page, we hear about it. And Mm so uh, we worked hard over the past uh, five years to really have aligned practices, to have instructional guidelines that teachers can come in and follow. The fun part about that is that there's always this perceived, uh, oh, have to versus guideline issue that we have to address. So we've had to really be intentional around, this is inclusive policy structure. When you tell me this isn't working in our instructional guidelines, and our team gets together and we, we redesign those to be more responsive, That's an inclusive policy structure because, in a way, those guidelines are a policy, even though they're not maybe a board policy. And Mm -hmm. so we've had to be intentional in calling that out, especially when we do some of the measurements like the FIA and the FIT that I've had to say, okay, you know when you said this wasn't working and our team came together and said, okay, let's fix it? That's an inclusive policy structure.
0: (laughs) That's great. Great. So, so on that topic of inclusion, um, I don't know that much about your district in terms of its, its inclusive policies and practices before SWIFT and since SWIFT. How, how have how things evolved or are evolving in terms of students with IEPs being in the general regular education classrooms? Can you talk a little bit about past and present on that and in future?
1: Yeah, (laughs) I can. Um, You know, we're never where I want to be, which is, I guess, the nature of continuous school improvement. Um, We're never as far as I want to be personally and my personal goals and including all students we are much further along than when we started with this. Um, Again, it's dealing with those misperceptions that we would just sort of, you know, abolish all special education classrooms and throw kids into classrooms when the teachers have no skills. So it's been about building capacity, building capacity to sustain, you know, change over time in those microscopic, sometimes seemingly ways uh, of how we, how we talk about students when we're data teaming are we talking about every single student or just these students but you know whatever never mind these guys are on special ed so we have to worry about them right. um so so the data teaming where we're talking about every single student the shift in just our student from your student my student those are swift things that that we've uh, really been intentional and and i think that's the big shift with SWIFT is I, I definitely have came into it with an inclusive mindset or we wouldn't have been part of the SWIFT project, right? And I was the one who signed the, signed the MOU and got us started and then there's a lot of fear around that, right? It's just going to yeah. backfire on me. And we try actually not to call it SWIFT because it's, it's just about our multi system, the support that we put in place for all students, about... Yep. All the things we already do, and we don't want to give it a dirty name, you know. (laughs) So, a whole
0: new name, at least, right? (laughs) Right? Yeah, not another program. We're just trying to strengthen what we're we're
1: exactly. But I think it's the intentional, the purposeful, being intentional when we're looking at placements. How are we intentional on every individualized education plan? We really are looking at the least restrictive environment and the most inclusive environment. And when we come to barriers, how are we addressing that with professional development? with um, tools, with strategies, with those types of things that teachers need to be more inclusive. Uh, But primarily intentional around that they're our students, not your students, my students, not tribal students, uh, non-tribal students, they're our students. This is our community. These are our students. How are we intentionally including everyone and meeting their needs?
0: Right. How no, that's beautiful. How um have you seen the the capacity building kind of evolve? You talked about that's was that's your focus on building capacity. Are there certain, you know, was it around co teaching? Was it around the use of paraprofessionals? Was it around creating more differentiated instruction or universal design for learning? Like where where did the capacity need to be built to make sure teachers general ed teachers felt successful?
1: So we did it kind of sneakily. <laughs> we we really started with those instructional guidelines because if we had really high quality instruction for all then we have fewer kids that need those secondary and tertiary supports so we really started with the instructional guidelines and and embedding in there you have to differentiate um and calling you know universal design for learning that's been something that you know that's again something new right but it's for some it's not something new they just haven't defined what it is so helping them go yes you do this but you do it before you teach the lesson not during you know what i mean you you plan the lesson that way that's the big difference is that you plan multiple means of representation multiple means of engagement and multiple means of expression in the onset given who you know your students are instead of planning a lesson and then retrofitting it so really um, focusing on those principles of universal design for learning without calling it that, um, trying to get more professional development for teachers um, and having them dig into their data more, really looking at the growth of each and every student. So those have been some changes and tweaks that have, I think, supported this movement.
0: Yeah, that's excellent. Um I want to move on in a minute to to uh, your own dissertation, because I know you, you did some really exciting work recently. But but I want to make sure, is there anything else that we haven't talked about? I, you know, one thing, I guess, I do want to address for sure, and, and then let me know if there's anything else you wanted to cover in terms of some of the work you're doing in the district um, that we haven't talked about. But around hiring, intentional hiring to... Uh, to hire more Native American certified teaching staff, you alluded to that briefly earlier. But has a what are the efforts go, uh, look like to do that, and how how successful has it been?
1: We went all over the country one year trying when we were had a big hiring opportunity. We went all over the country intentionally trying to hire uh, teachers who were uh, of Native American descent from any indigenous group in the in in the states, but. Uh, we have, we always try to look at that. Are we recruiting? And when the TAP grant initially came up, that's why we actually borrowed a C2IR employee so that it would be someone that had the connections with the tribe, had the relationships with the tribal government, had those, those already established. So we actually, the tribe loaned an employee to us, if you will, um, Brent Spencer, who is also on my brother's keeper project. But he worked for us for a year took a, a, basically a leave of absence from his role uh, as a, education coordinator for the education department and worked for us for a year. So trying to get creative around those things, we've we've talked a lot about and worked on trying to grow our own. We have sort of an intro to teaching class. We try to recruit students in there that so that they'll go be teachers and come back and teach in our district. Um, So those are some of the efforts. Um, They were really concerted and organized for a period of two years, our HR director left. And and so we're sort of uh, rebuilding that, that systemic or systematic, excuse me, uh, approach to hiring.
0: What about, you may have alluded to this earlier, but I don't think we talked about it much, the sixth grade curriculum. Um, I don't know if you addressed that earlier in any depth, but can you talk a little bit about that effort?
1: Yes. Yeah, so we have an outdoor school uh, unit of study that all of our sixth grade students do. And when we looked at uh, looking at adapting curriculum and making it more inclusive of all people's history, (laughs) we started there. So we started with that unit of study and that has been evolving over time, but we sat down with uh, tribal historians and people from the Department of Natural Resources and people from the Language Department, from the the Confederated Tribes of Matilla Indian Reservation and sixth grade teachers and, and designed a unit of study that built off of the Indians in Oregon Today curriculum that the state had put out many years ago, sort of updated it, improved it, and then added those things to our sixth grade curriculum unit of study um, during and right after their outdoor school experience. So that's where it started. Uh, Laura Miltenberger, who you know, also worked with our uh, third and fourth grade teachers in primarily or fourth grade to talk it we had the westward migration unit used to be the oregon trail unit of SETI. how are we making sure that we're not just representing the settlers uh, version of that story how are we making sure that there are also the first contact with our tribal partners that are represented in that history as well um couple other changes, too, that I did want to note, and I sent you some pictures of the Friendsgiving feast. So mm-hmm. when we started our, our language program, a couple teachers were like, so how do you feel about this whole Pilgrims and Indians Thanksgiving <laughs> feast yeah. that we do? A couple yeah. bold teachers who, who did what you're supposed to do, ask when you don't know. And um, so they got the point of view of a couple of our language teachers, and um, went, "Oh yeah, we got to change that." So, <laughs> so it became a friendsgiving feast, and instead of having pilgrims and Indians, you actually have turkey drumsticks, turkeys, you know those types of things, and they still have a little celebration, celebratory feast, and focus on the friendship, but no longer sort of separated into that pilgrims and Indians, and 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 don't further perpetuate the myth of this glorious first contact that is perpetuated through the holiday.
0: Right. Right. That's powerful. That is powerful. And how is that received by the overall student body and and staff?
1: You know, I don't think the student body notices. I mean, I think, (laughs) um, they, they have a great time and there are some staff who I think were a little bit resistant to that because it's the way that we've always done it. We've always done it this way. Um, but they just sort of said, made a clean break and said, no, we're not going to do it that way anymore. And, um, and they still get to have the celebration that I think is what they enjoy about it
0: mm-hmm. and not
1: perpetuate the myth that, it, that surrounds it. Um, and then we actually are, have worked last spring. We developed sort of a preliminary or a, a proposed scope and sequence that has every single grade level has something that we would teach directly about the CTYR. And more work will happen this year around that because there was a, we wanted to get out ahead of a Senate bill mm-hmm. so that it didn't just have tribes from the west side. It also had the C2IR tribal histories in there. And so we're trying to have something at each grade level that will be included in, in units of study that we're already doing. So that it's not like, okay, now you have to do this too. It's like when you do the, your water cycle unit and your watershed unit, you're going to talk about the life cycle of the salmon and the importance of the salmon to the C2IR people and how that's central to their to their culture as far as the nomadic things that they did for hunting and fishing and moving around with the seasons. So you're going to include those things when you do that. So every grade level has social studies standards that are related to tribal histories and indigenous people histories. And so we actually just sort of lined those standards up, looked at kind of what units of study do they do at first grade? Oh, they do a farms unit. That'd be great to talk about the hunting or the gathering of berries in the mountains. So that's something that they do every spring when the barriers and berries are ready, they go up and they pick them. And the root digging, every year when the roots are ready, they go up and dig roots. Um, So those were things that that are in in play now that we're really trying to work on and refine and then work with each grade level to start implementing those um, there. The other thing that I didn't mention that I do want to mention is that when we worked with the tribal attendance pilot project, made a, a big shift where if a student does go root digging, that's not counted as an absence that's counted as an um, off campus learning experience because Mm. they are learning about their culture. And I have been root digging. I have been blessed enough to be invited to go root digging and it is, a powerful and beautiful experience that if you ever have the chance, I recommend you go, you go up into the mountains and you learn about the right route to pick and the wrong route to pick. There's the good sister and the bad sister and they're hard to tell apart. And, and then you use the, the traditional tools for digging the roots and collecting the roots. And then you go through the washing and the preparing of the roots. And then you give roots away to someone when it's your first root dig. So you have a giveaway where you give, something you prepared from the roots to someone who's your elder or someone in your family as that. So, uh, those kinds of experiences now count as an off school learning experience, not
0: an absence from school. That's great. And, and no, that was so powerful. And so is, is the root, does it ultimately become a tea or a food or what, how is it, what's the end? It's a
1: food. I would say, I don't know if you've ever been to Hawaii, the poi, it's kind of the same, like a taro root almost, but it's, okay. um, it's, they will dry it. They'll, they'll, um, they'll make it into a paste. They'll. they'll do a lot of different things with that root and then you can eat it.
0: So that's fascinating. So before I kind of wind down by asking you about your dissertation a little bit, tell me how you obviously have such a passion for, for, uh, this area of your work and, and for the knowledge you've gained, what, what cultivated that passion? Why, why do you feel so passionately about this? Why are you so, uh, invested?
1: People ask me that all the time. And, um, and I don't have a great answer for it. I mean, I think uh, I—I'm not trying to say you know I'm—it's not my culture. I'm not trying to appropriate it in any sort of way because I am very, very white <laughs> in my upbringing, very Eurocentrist in my in my upbringing, and and that and I'm not trying you know, but I guess for me it's when we. It's the sovereignty issue. That's what it is, it's the sovereignty issue. You know, I have grown up in places named after Native American peoples. I grew up in Moses Lake, uh, Washington, and n- no idea that that even existed. And so I guess it's sort of in confrontation to my own ignorance and growing up and uh, becoming informed. And, and this is 20% of our student population, and it's 25% of our special education population. So making sure that we respond to the needs of all of our, our learners. And just for me, a passion around equity. I've always had a passion around equity. So I look at who's pushed most to the margins of, of whatever group I'm working with. And that's where I sort of put my efforts in work. Because those are the ones who have the least voice in what happens typically. And that to me just isn't, isn't, doesn't sit well. I guess I'm just it's my passion for equity for all. Mm -hmm. that drives that and having been a special education teacher i identified a lot of students for special education who probably it was more learning difference than it was disability and i feel like that's you know i have a culpability in that to do something about it in the system because i'm in a place where i can change some things in the system
0: right well perfectly well said um just we we have a few minutes left but i'd like to hear about the focus of your dissertation and how that kind of maybe weaves into some of the, the themes we've been talking about
1: Well, certainly that's been integral. So I started my doctoral program the same time I started as director, um, which I don't recommend to anybody. Um, (laughs) I also have two children. So it was, uh, yeah, I had a husband. So, um, but I started the work at the same time. So started thinking about the disproportionality. And you start, you're first engaging in the work. And uh, my focus of my program was around social justice and equity. So, of course, the, the things that you read are pretty provocative in that. Um, so I first started looking at the disproportionality. I, well, that's an issue that I'm facing today. I've got to write a plan to fix this, essentially. So how do I go about doing that? So then as I started reading and digging, I ultimately did a retrospective account uh, to try to give, it's called, uh, it's called uh, well, now that's easy. <laughs> uh, uh, let's see, what is it? Um, <laughs> This that's is embarrassing. Right. It's voices from the Columbia Plateau, but I wanted to give voice to students who had lived through the school system about what social practices they found helpful or not helpful. So what were those things that hindered their ability to achieve academically and um, socially? And what were those things that hindered them? Mm-hmm. So that's what it is. It's, uh, it's in-depth it's interviews with people who had been through Pendleton Public Schools, experienced our schools firsthand, um, who were identifying themselves as themselves as confederate tribes umatilla indian reservation members who uh, identified as native american and Spoke to their experiences in schools and within that I used the critical or the tribal critical race theory as a theoretical lens to view that work so that colonization is endemic to u.s society uh, And that liminal Experiences of people who are on reservation lands and that in betweenness that people feel So then sort of listened, and and they gave me such rich stories, and I am so grateful for the people who shared their lives with me and their experiences going to school. Um, And, you know, I mean, the results weren't shocking. We need to partner with our tribal partners. We need to not omit the histories of people. When we put history out there, we teach history. We can't omit entire groups of people in that. Right. Um, We have to deal with our own ethnocentric and Eurocentric systems with teachers who are white. We have to address that. We have to acknowledge that. We have to sit with some of the discomfort of that.
0: Right, right. Wow. Well, um, just kind of as we wrap up here, can you tell me about what makes you hopeful? I'm I'm hoping that you are hopeful in terms of the (laughs) the success of the American Indian population that you work with, Native Americans, and uh, that you're seeing some, some, some positive signs that all the work you're doing, all the work the district is doing, the influence of Swift hopefully is making a positive difference. What any any hopeful signs you can point to? Oh my gosh! Yeah, so many really we s- talked about because there's a lot of good things you've talked about. There's
1: already. S- so many hopeful signs. The the one thing for my dissertation is the resilience, the vitality, and the claiming of their sovereignty that our youth are are ready and poised and already doing. Just the the resilience that they have and the strength that they have always, it to me is impressive. And so that was one of the big things out of my dissertation is these are not a weak people; these are a strong people, and and um, they have the right to define what counts as education. And it's our job to make sure they have the voice to do that, that we don't silence those voices who have a right to define for themselves what counts as education. So I have seen the, the discipline data to me uh, was so exciting when I looked at that this year because you know disciplinary practices are not how we're going to help our students. Excluding kids from school isn't how we're going to help our students, any of our students. So to see that drastic reduction just by you know, making people sit with that data every year um, was very exciting to me. Seeing that we have teachers who know we have instructional guidelines. We sat through an interview process for teachers and they're like, well, we have these instructional guidelines and I don't know if that person's going to be willing to follow those. So I don't know that we should hire, you know, so in our hiring practice. So I see lots of hope in the work we've done around conscious discipline. I had a grant that we were spending out <laughs> and I said, who wants what? And, they knew exactly what they wanted. They knew exactly what they were ready to implement next, whether it was a wishing well routine, or the feeling buddies curriculum, or whether it was the, uh, the um, we have a, it's a time machine uh, resolution mat, conflict resolution mat. They knew exactly what they wanted. So that to me tells me that we have some deep implementation of these priorities that we focus on. And those priorities have come out of the priority and practice planning that we've done with the SWIFT,
0: uh, mm-hmm. yeah. That's great. Well, I just want to say that I think uh, you're doing amazing work there—not just you, but I'm sure many people in your district. And so, it, it's exciting to both hear what's been going on for a long time, and also, I think I could speak from the Swift community to say we're really proud that we that Swift has had some small, perhaps, but but some part to play in in the success you're having. So, congratulations so much, Julie.
1: Yes, thank you. I, it has not been me. It's been teachers who do the hard work every day, and our principals who are the instructional leaders in their building. We're just trying to make sure they have the framework to do it, and and it's countering countering the narrative of borderland schooling. Hmm. Voices from the Columbia Plateau.
0: <laughs> okay, thank you. That's, That's the title of your dissertation. Yes. Okay. Great. <laughs> I'm glad to have it on. Honor- <laughs> Listen, you guys, I, um, I, I, we need to wrap up, but I just want to thank you so much for sharing your experience with us today and the Swift and to the entire SWIFT community. I think this podcast is going to be really popular among everyone. Uh, I also want to remind people to check out swiftschools.org, where you'll find lots of resources to support your work in transforming education so that each and every student is welcomed and well-supported in their neighborhood schools and in general education classrooms. I want to thank everyone for listening today and make sure you know that these podcasts can be downloaded on iTunes. SWIFT is a national K-8 center that provides academic and behavioral support to promote the learning and academic achievement of all students, including students with disabilities and those with the most extensive support needs. Thank you for listening and Julie, thanks so much again for being with us.
1: Thank you.